You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. First, let me say my name is Clint, and another big welcome to all of our guests, all of our family members uh, who are here with us. We're so glad you've joined us this morning, and I'll try not to be too long so we can get to the uh, real start of the show today, which is uh, watching some people follow Jesus in baptism, which I'm so excited about. Uh, I was thinking this week, you know, it's a really interesting uh, couple weeks for my hometown. I grew up in North Louisiana uh, in a town called Monroe, Louisiana. Um, and there, one of our natives had a really big week, a guy named Andrew Whitworth. Uh, he won, he's the left tackle for the Los Angeles Rams, won the Super Bowl. He was the oldest starting offensive lineman in the history of the NFL. But even before the Super Bowl, he won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, which the NFL says is their highest honor. It's the only honor you can get that's more about what you do off the field than on the field. So it's a big deal. He was all over the news. Uh, he was all over everything else. Uh, what's interesting is, so I actually, he's a, a couple years older than me, but I actually went to church with Andrew for a little while, and I went to the same school as Andrew for a little while. Uh, but about eighth grade, he transferred schools, and then when you know it, uh, in eighth grade football, my team ended up playing, uh, they call him, we call him Big Quit, Big Quit's team for the championship. And guess who was lined up right across for Mr. NFL Man of the Year, Andrew Whitworth? That's right, me. Now, you're never going to guess who won. Y'all, now let, you need to know this. In eighth grade, if you met me in eighth grade, uh, I would look shockingly similar to it as I do right now. A little less gray hair, but full beard. I mean, I had the full beard, uh, you know, same, about same height and weight, uh, so I wasn't kidding around in eighth grade. Uh, and sure enough, y'all had a couple tackles. In fact, uh, last play of the game, they had the ball fourth down. They had to make it. We were winning. Uh, I sh he comes to block me. I shed the block. I go make the tackle. Boom, game over. We win. So by my calculations, by the transitive property, I should be the NFL man of the year, right? Yeah, thank you. What ended up happening this, this couple weeks, all over Facebook, you know, a lot of my old friends and stuff from middle school, they're posting all these old pictures of Big Whip. And it's all kind of the same stuff of the story I just told you. It's not great, flattering pictures of him. It's pictures of him in, in middle school, excuse me, in middle school, in junior high, uh, kind of embarrassing pictures, you know. And, and why do we do that? The same reason I told you that story, just to let you know, hey, I, I'm familiar with him. I, I know this popular, impressive guy. I know him. And he's like me. And I'm like him. I mean, he's not that great. And then I saw our local news station did a story. I couldn't believe it. Of all the things they could talk about with Big Whit, this is the story. They interviewed a girl named Molly Harper. Now, in this picture, this is our seventh grade football team, the big guy, top row in the middle, 56, that's Andrew Whitworth. The second biggest person on the team is Molly Harper. She was our middle linebacker. <laughs> she was the toughest, meanest one on the team. This whole story for the NFL man in the year was all about the first day of practice in seventh grade when Molly Harper laid out Andrew Whitworth, put him on his back. That's the, that's the whole story, everything they could have talked about. And it's true and it's right. What, again, why do we do that? The local news station, they want to talk to people. Hey, all these, here's all these people who knew 
Andrew and to kind of say, yeah, listen, we're proud of him. He's impressive. He's a great guy. He's, he's doing all these things, but he's one of us. He's just like us. We're like him. Now, I want you to imagine for a little bit. Imagine if Andrew wasn't, he, he is. He's a great guy. He's humble. Imagine if he wasn't so humble. Imagine if after winning the Super Bowl, he comes to back to Monroe with a Super Bowl ring and says, guess what? I'm the captain now. I'm in charge of all of you. You're not like me. I'm actually greater than you, and I'm in charge of you in your life. And not only that, I am God. I am Lord, and I'm Lord over you. Now, I imagine those Facebook posts wouldn't be quite so flattering, would they? There would be a lot of scoffers. Uh, There would be some who were angry. There would be some who would laugh. There would be a lot of people trying to put Big Quit in his place. Today, what we're going to see in Mark 6 is we're going to see Jesus come to his hometown. Now, what Mark's been telling us over and over and over again is that all that God wants from us, all he wants from us is faith. That's it. And so far, the first five chapters, we've seen a lot of people, huge crowds, getting familiar with Jesus. Witnessing his miracles, listening to his teaching, but that's not quite the same as following. And in chapter 6 of Mark, what I think he's trying to show us is this. Familiarity, it's not the same as faith or following. Familiarity, it's not the same as faith or following. I'm sorry, Clinton, is that something I'm doing on my end? Okay, they're giving me this signal. I think that means I need to do this. All right, we'll see if that works. If not, I'll just turn it off and shout. Okay, verse 1, chapter 6. Let's start reading. We're going we're gonna to do a, a little change here. We better? Okay. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began, thank you guys, he, he began to teach in the synagogue, uh, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So, Jesus goes home. Instead of a warm reception, people are offended by him. I don't know. Is it hitting my face or? Okay, we'll try that. So he goes home. People are offended. It's not a welcoming party, which is interesting. Everywhere else he's gone, huge crowds, pep rally for Jesus. It's a parade, except when he goes home. It says, verse 3, that they took offense at him. That, That word is the Greek word scandaliso. It's a word for scandal. He created a scandal going home. And that word actually has a a really interesting word picture with it. It combines a word, a word for trap with a word for, to literally means to fall on your face. So what he's saying is Jesus tripped them up so bad they did a face plant. That's what happened. Now, I want you to notice what it is. Why? What is it about Jesus that makes them face plant over him? Notice their questions and their, really their complaints. They can't argue with his teaching. They actually agree with what he's teaching. It's wise. The scribes, they had tried to disprove it with scripture. They can't disprove it. No one can argue with it. They just can't figure out where it came from. They're asking, what what authority does this man have? See, 
in the synagogues back then, every other rabbi, they'd get and teach in the synagogues, and they had to cite other rabbis and cite scripture. It's kind of like case law in our legal system. You had to cite some other high authority, higher authority than yourself. Because on your own, just you, you're just a dude. You don't, have, you don't have the authority to say what's true and what's not true. But Jesus wouldn't do that. He'd get up there and just say stuff. And he wouldn't cite other rabbis and other sources of authority. What's he saying when he does that? He's saying, I'm the authority. He's saying, I am God. And so, y'all, they're not doing a faith plant over the content of what he said. They're doing a faith plant over who he claimed to be. Him claiming to be God, that's what they can't stomach. They also, the way they talk about his works, they, they can't argue with his miracles and his works. They just say, how are they done? How are these mighty works done? So they can't refute his miracles. People have tried. They believe that his miracles are completely real and completely authentic. But they just can't seem to put faith in who he is what that says about who he is. There's one more clue. They call him son of Mary. Now, in the Roman world back then, 100% of times, you should have said son of Joseph. Every time you cite the father, even if the father is dead and passed away, they don't do that. There's only one explanation. They knew Joseph wasn't his father. They knew that. And so they know his origin story. They are willing to accept the virgin birth, but they faith-planted over the idea of him being God. You see, they knew a whole lot about Jesus. But familiarity is not the same as faith. And so just then, Mark, he does what he often does. is very quickly, he shifts scenes. He takes us somewhere else, and he's going to show us what faith looks like. See, Mark has a word throughout his gospel about faith in action. Here's what faith in action looks like. It looks like following. People with faith become followers. So let's pick it back up in verse 7 says, he called the twelve, he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So now remember, chapter 3, Jesus had called his disciples, it says, to do two things. Number one, to be with him, and then number two, to be sent out and preach. Now they've been with him for a while. They spent a lot of time getting familiar with Jesus. And honestly, I'm sure that's where they would have loved to have stayed, right by his side. But again, familiarity is not the same as following. Mark is showing us that to follow Jesus is to be sent out by him. To follow him is to be sent out by him. And this is a little counterintuitive to us. And I mean, I think if we were there with Jesus and the pep rallies and all these things happening, we would think, you know, following Jesus means just to stay right next to his side all the time. Never leave aside, leave aside. And so we watch, we, we listen, maybe we help, you know, with some logistics here and there. But we don't leave him. We don't leave his side, right? But following Jesus means participating in his mission. That's the picture Mark is going to paint throughout his gospel. Now, what I would think, what they probably thought, like, wait a minute, I can't do what he does. I can't do that. But notice in verse 7, he sends them out with his authority. This is the Bible's way of saying, listen, Jesus is still doing the ministry. He's still doing it. He's just doing it through you. It's his authority, not yours. And then in verse 8, he tells them what they can take. And it's almost nothing. It is shockingly little. Why? The message is, you cannot depend on human resources to accomplish God's task. 
They're insufficient anyway, so there's no point in bringing them along with you. Now, there's probably some people here who cannot take a trip without packing three suitcases, okay? I've been on a plane with some of you. I know. We got we to gotta have everything. We got to be prepared for everything. That's why we need so much stuff. I mean, I got to be prepared for the weather. What if a bag gets lost? What if, uh, you know, this happens or this happens and then this happens? And I got to have this outfit. And I got to have everything. And the more of my stuff I have, the better prepared I am. Jesus says, not with me. With me, you don't need all the things. You need one thing, my authority. That's all you need. Everything else is insufficient. And also notice, they repeat Jesus' message. They don't have to come up with some creative message. Verse 12, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This should sound very familiar. What was John the Baptist's message in Mark chapter 1? Repent. What was Jesus' message when he began his ministry? Repent. They are just repeating Jesus' message. It's not our message. It's his. Now, what I think Mark wants us to see here is that there's lots of people very familiar with Jesus. Countless people, huge crowds, had heard him speak. And they could, have tell, they could come tell us exactly. Here's all the things that he said. They could all tell us the amazing things that he did. But Jesus is looking for more than familiarity. He's looking for followers. To follow him is to be sent out by him. Under his authority, with his resources, and preaching his message. And for now... They do, and they follow, and they're sent out, and it's great for now. But Mark wants us to be aware that the message that people should repent, that's not going to be good news to everybody. Not everyone is going to love this message. In fact, if you follow him, you will suffer. And so Mark recounts, he reminds them of what happened to John the Baptist. So he's kind of given us a flashback of what happened in the past. Let's pick it up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, that's the disciples' success being sent out, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised for the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work with him, in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So we meet another man who here who's familiar with Jesus, but not, not have faith. Herod. Herod knew all about John the Baptist. He knew all about the message of repent. He knew about Jesus. And you can keep reading the next few verses, this whole sordid account of how John is beheaded, and then his head is paraded around in the middle of this huge debaucherous party that Herod is having. So the lack of faith they have, I want you to notice once again, it's, it's not about what Jesus taught. They like his teaching. It's not even about what he does. They're not arguing that these miracles happened. It goes back to who he is. And there's all sorts of speculation about who he is. John the Baptist, Elijah, another prophet. But all of those are just men. They're, and they're willing to accept and stomach that maybe he's an amazing man. But none of these men claim to be God. And I don't know about you. Verse 20 is amazing to me. Herod 
He respected John. He admired John. He loved to listen to John teach. So Herod is as familiar with Jesus and his message as anyone, and even liked it. But he didn't have faith. He didn't have faith that Jesus was who he said he was. Why? Well, most people have a vested interest in denying Jesus' divinity. Because if he really is God, and it is God calling to me to repent, that would require my repentance. And John had been preaching his message of repentance to Herod. Because there's this whole crazy background going on here. This is, this is layer upon layer upon layer of immorality. So there's lots of Herod back in those days. And just know, back in Roman times, if somebody is named Herod, that's a bad dude. He's violent. Uh, he's got all kind of stuff going on. His life is a dumpster fire, uh, but he's also really powerful. You don't want to mess with him, okay? So this in this story is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. That's the Herod we meet at the birth of Jesus, okay? So this is that Herod's son. When that Herod, Herod the Great, when he died, he split his empire between four of his sons. He had more sons, but he killed some of them. So the four that were left, he split his empire between those four. Philip was another one of these sons. So Herod, Antipas' brother, Philip, they each had different parts of the kingdom. Well, Herod, and really a lot of people, historians say it was really driven by Herodias, Philip's wife. Herod steals Philip's wife, Herodias, the thinking being that they could also get his kingdom and, and make his kingdom even better. Now, so Herod is now married to Herodias, who was his brother's wife, and you may say, Herodias, that sounds like a lot like the name Herod. That's right, they're related too. So Herodias is Herod's niece. And so he marries his brother's wife, who's also a niece. Have you ever heard the Ray Stevens song, I'm My Own Grandpa? That's what that reminded me of. It's like, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like, I'm married a widow whose my stepdaughter married my dad, and they had a kid who's my wife's uncle, so now I'm my own grandpa. That's essentially what's going on here, okay? It gets nuts. Herod, again, he liked John, he liked the teaching, he liked the message, but he was unwilling to admit that what he did with Herodias was wrong. And he was unwilling to repent. And so verse 21 through 29, y'all, literally the picture is repentance would have ruined Herod's party. Herod's having a big old party, high on life, YOLO, having a great time. And repentance would have messed that up. So instead he parades John's head around so that his party can continue. All Herod's love, respect, admiration for John is meaningless without repentance. So Jesus, he's not looking for people to have a party with. He's not even looking for just fans. He is looking for followers. Alexander McLaren, he's this old Baptist Scottish preacher from the 1900s. He said this, We do not make up for such cowardly shrinking from doing right by pleasure in the divine word which we are not obeying. Man, I read that this week, and I'm like, why, why do you got to say stuff like that? I mean, why, stop meddling in my life, okay? He goes on, Herod, no doubt, thought that his delight in listening to John went some way to atone for his refusal to get rid of Herodias. Some of us think ourselves good Christians because we assent to truth, and even like to hear it, provided the speaker suits our taste. 
but glad hearing only aggravates the guilt of not doing. It is useless to admire John if you keep Herodias. It's useless to admire John if you keep Herodias. Which I think is just another way of saying familiarity is not faith. God's not looking for admirers. He is not looking for fans. He is looking for repenters and followers. And then I had to ask myself, listen, why put this message in the middle, in the context of all these disciples being sent out, having lots of success? I mean, it's kind of a Debbie Downer of an event, right? And it already happened in the past. He didn't have to put it right here. He is foreshadowing amidst all the success and all the parades and all the hoopla. He is foreshadowing what will happen to Jesus and to them. To Jesus and all who follow him. I think it's Mark's way of saying, it's Jesus' way of saying, are you sure you want to follow me? This is what they did to John. When John ruined their party. This is what they're going to do to me when I ruin their party. It's what they'll do to you. That is what I'm sending you out into. Now, there's a verse I've asked us all to memorize. Mark 10, 45. Let's put it on the screen. Let's say this verse together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this context, in the context of the book of Mark and where this verse is, you know what serve means? Suffer. Serve means suffer. It means the cross. And if that's true for Jesus, and we follow him, and we are sent out by him, it will also be true for us. There's no way around it. Now, listen, you can stay familiar with Jesus all you want to, and you can stay at the party, just like all Herod's guests did. But when you choose faith and following, eventually the world will lash out, because you've ruined their party, and you're calling them to repent. Now, some say, you know, it's often kind of said in our part of the world, you know, that we live, we used to live in a Christian culture, and now we live in a secular one. I, I actually disagree with both of those. I, I think there's plenty of ways, plenty of ways for a long time that our, our culture is at odds with the Bible. And if you choose to repent of those things, you will find yourself kicked out of the party. And I would say even today, no culture is truly secular. Every culture has its God. Our culture has just chosen different ones now. And, you know, you know what they are. Hey, entertainment. We all love a party, right? Sports, materialism, politics, group identity. There's countless ones, but you know what they are. And know this. Like all gods, they demand loyalty. And they're happy to let you be familiar with Jesus. Hey, love his teaching, admire him, respect him all you want to. But the second you repent and follow Jesus alone, you will see the people you used to party with lash out at you. Just try, try this. This week, the next couple weeks, go to someone who spends money the way you do, who votes the way you do, who's, who participates in the same activities you do, and tell them, you know, we're not perfect here, this is great, and this is great, but actually, I, I think there's something we need to repent of. You know, may, maybe we've taken this too far, or maybe this part doesn't quite square with the Bible, or, or maybe nothing's wrong, but just following Jesus needs to have a higher priority in our life. And watch their reaction. They will kick you out of the party. Justice. Just as we get this sobering message, 
Mark, he does what he always does. He brings the story back to the present and returns to the disciples. Now, we just got a word for this. Another uh, lunch uh, meal here. We've got a Markin sandwich. They're all through the book. So we started out sending the disciples. Then we get what seems like an interruption. That's the meat of our sandwich. Then he goes, he's going back to the disciples, back to revisit them. And what's he doing? He wants to illustrate uh, what he is teaching. And these are all meant to go together. And he does it with a story we're probably all familiar with, the feeding of the 5,000. Disciples, they return. They're swarmed by another crowd. More yay, Jesus, yay, Jesus. And it gets late, and everyone is hungry. And they are quickly getting hangry. And so let's pick it up in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall, <laughs> shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And so we see here Jesus with the crowds. Mark tells us he has compassion on the, all these people. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is what Mark's trying to show us. Whatever is true of Jesus should become true of his followers. So if Jesus has compassion on these people, what should his followers be like? They want to send them away. I don't know. They'll let them figure it out. And Jesus is trying to get the message. No, 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 no. This is a partnership here. And so in verse 37, he says, you give them something to eat. And they say, <laughs> good one. That's possible. We don't have that much money. That would probably be about eight months or a year's worth of wages is the amount of food they're talking about. They don't have that. They don't have the food. They can't do, do this. But Jesus is being serious. He's being absolutely serious. He's saying, listen, even though you're with me now, you're still sent. You're not just a bystander. You're not just a reporter. This is now a partnership here. Now, why would he be asking them to do something that's impossible for them? Remember sending them out? It's the same message. Don't depend on your own human resources. You are sent out on my authority with my resources for my purpose. It's the same message. And you know the story. They find five loaves, two fishes. Jesus blesses them, multiplies them. They feed 5,000 men, so there's probably way more actual people there than that. And there's 12 baskets left over. What's, what's Jesus trying to teach his disciples here? He's saying, listen... In this partnership, what you have in me is more than enough. What you have is more than enough if it's in his hands. And then, after he multiplies the food, he has his disciples distribute them and pass them out. Again, they are participating in the ministry. He's telling them, listen, you may not have done the miracle, but you will distribute the resources. Y'all, nothing has changed in ministry since that day. It's still the same process. And these disciples, through this event, they are learning to follow. They are learning to follow him. They have moved from familiar to following. But, but Jesus still has to work some work to do with them about their faith. And so real quickly, we move to the next scene. In the next scene, Jesus once again sends them out without him. So they send them out without him. They come back together. He's sending them out without him 
again, and they get in a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. Then we read, verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. So they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So this is another familiar episode. Jesus walks on water. Before he gets there in verse 48, we find the disciples struggling. Suddenly, ministry is not so fun anymore. They are working hard, and they are getting nowhere. Maybe you can identify. It's about three to, between 3 and 6 a.m. at this time, and they've been rowing all night, and they still haven't made it to the other side because of these strong opposing winds. And then they see Jesus, but they're completely mistaken about who he is. They think he's a ghost. And Mark intentionally is, is making them like the people in the episode of Herod. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. They're all just speculating about who he is, and they are getting it wrong. But that's not the most surprising part. The most surprising part to me is verse 52, where Mark explains why they got it so wrong. It says, they didn't understand about the loaves. What? What? Y'all, this confused me all week. I would have thought they were confused because in the middle of the night, some guy is walking on the water and commanding the waves. I would have thought that would be the confusing part. But he's bringing them back the loaves. The loaves seem pretty straightforward, pretty cut and dry. So what is it about the loaves that they didn't understand? Well, they were familiar with the facts. You know, five loaves, two fish, the came up. Well, they knew all that. They're clear on what happened. They didn't understand what it said about who Jesus is. That's what they didn't quite understand. And Jesus is getting ready to teach them so that they can have faith, not in just in what he says, not just in what he can do, but in who he is. There's some clues in the text and some very interesting uh, wording. And so it, it says that in verse 48, Jesus meant to pa- pass by them. Well, I thought that's odd, odd wording. He meant to pass by them. Just, you know, he didn't hope they, he hoped they wouldn't see him. What, what's going on there? Well, y'all, that's the exact wording you'll find in Exodus 33, where God wants to show Moses his glory as he hides in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by Moses. It's the same wording you'll see in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah when the Lord wants to show Elijah who he is, that he is God, and Elijah sits in the mouth of the cave. There's also some pointed wording when he he describes Jesus as walking on the sea. Let's look at Job 9, 8 through 11. Verse 8 says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things? Marvelous things beyond number, and behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Jesus is showing them that he is God, revealing himself in the same way that he has revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. He is giving them a glimpse of his glory. And for now, they'll get it, they'll get it, y'all, but for now, they totally miss it. And in this sense, they are just like the people in Jesus' hometown. They can't argue with, with what he is doing, but they cannot come to grips with who he is. Because, friends, familiarity is not the same as faith. How could they miss it? Well, it tells us. He tells us. Here's how they missed it. 
Their hearts were hard. And this is the key verse in the whole chapter, I think, guys. Their hearts were hard. And this is a common phrase. You'll see it throughout the Bible. And it, it means uh, someone who is not willing to receive the truth. They see it. They hear it. It's in front of them. But they do not receive it, and it does not shape their hearts. See, our hearts are supposed to be like clay. It's supposed to be soft, pliable, moldable by the truth of God. But they become like rock, fixed, unwilling to be reshaped. And so this is an image of receptivity. They didn't have an information problem. They had plenty of information. They had a receptivity problem. Their hearts were not moldable to the truth of God's word. They were not yet receptive to the truth of who God was. And this is amazing to me. I mean, there's no one more familiar with Jesus than them. But familiarity is not the same as faith. And faith in God means faith that he is God. That is what he is trying to make them understand throughout all these events in chapter 6. Faith in God doesn't mean he can do a bunch of impressive stuff. It doesn't mean that he has amazing teaching. Faith in, in Jesus means faith that he is God. You know, I've been reading this week, and I just, I'm stunned by how much they knew. They knew so much more than me. And yet they're still, their hearts to be hardened. And so I have, think we have to ask. I think it's appropriate. I think it's what God wants us to ask as we read this passage. You know, if it's possible for the disciples to hear all the teaching that they heard and see all the miracles that they saw and still miss who Jesus is, well, is that same thing possible for us? I think we have to say yes. Absolutely, that is possible for us. Maybe you listen to sermons all the time. You love listening to good preaching. But you know who else in chapter 6 loved listening to good preaching? Herod. Herod. That's not who we want to be. He loved listening to John. But his heart was hardened. So this morning, where do you need to soften your heart to what Jesus is trying to teach you? Where do you need to soften your heart? Did you know? It's hard to do. I got to think, how do you, how do you, how do you soften your heart? How, how do I make that happen even if I can identify? Well, only one thing I can think of. Do you know you can pray for a soft heart? You can ask God. You can ask that he will make you receptive to him. And he will. He will answer that prayer. And maybe you're here, maybe for the first time this morning, you need to be receptive to the truth that he isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a prophet. He is God, and he is Lord of all. If that's you this morning, I invite you to do something real simple. Repent. Repent and believe. Repent of all other notions of who he is and believe that he is the true God. Here's the next verse I'm asking our whole church to memorize. These are short verses, old and young, and they really encapsulate the first one, who God is, and then this one, what's our response? What do we do? Mark 1.15, it says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Men and women, you don't have to walk on water. You don't have to do a bunch of crazy miracles. Just repent and believe. That's all. Second question I have for us this morning, myself included, is are you willing to move from familiarity to following? To follow is to be sent with his authority, his resources, his message. Now, remember when I said, you know, even our Christian culture can sometimes operate in ways that make perfect sense to us. We do it. Everybody we know does it. But when you look at the Bible, it's actually kind of contrary to the Bible. 
Well, the truth is, in the church, in our world, we've created a category of people that's non-existent in Mark chapter 6. It's not there. So in Mark, there are those who reject, and there are those who sin out. In the Bible Belt, here, we have created another category, the church attender. The church attender. Normal for us, you will not find it in Scripture. So I found myself thinking this morning, you know, if Mark, the events of Mark had happened today, would verse 7 through 9 ever have happened? You know, where, where Jesus tells people, his followers, to leave his side and go out? And would we understand that as followers we are sent out to participate in his ministry? Y'all, it is sad, but it is not unusual for people all around us to sit in churches for decades, listen, receive, soak in, learn, but never be sent out. And many will say, I said, well, I, I can't, I don't know how, I can't do that. Did you read Mark 6? That's great. That is exactly the point Jesus wants you to get. You can't do it with your resources. But often, you know, we come up with excuses, I can't do that, I don't, I, I don't know how, I don't know the Bible well enough, I'm not a good enough speaker, I'm too busy. Sounds just like the disciples. We don't have enough oil for the fish. We don't have money. We, we don't have the resources. And think about this. The disciples, they had only been with Jesus for a few months. Some of us sometimes, we're in church for 20, 30 years, and we still don't feel equipped like we can go out and do it. If, if that's the case, if, if they can spend a few months with Jesus and then go and sit down, and we, we can be here for decades, and you know, we're doing it wrong. And it's time. It is time to step out, to be sent out. Here's what I think we need to learn in our culture and how we need to let the Bible shape our understanding. You see, consuming ministry, it is enough to make you familiar with Jesus, but it doesn't make you a follower. Consuming ministry, sitting there, it's great. We believe in this. We need to preach the word. God uses it, but then there comes a time that we become followers and we become sent out. You know, every once in a while, I meet somebody new, talk and have a conversation and ask them what they do, and then eventually they make the mistake of asking me what I do. Uh, and so I tell them, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Well, the first response is usually, you see it in their face, they're trying to remember what they said, and remember if they said anything inappropriate that they, like, are embarrassed about saying in front of a preacher now. So that's the first step. And then usually, eventually they'll ask me, well, how, how many people attend our church? And I'll tell you what I hope the answer is, how many people attend our church. I hope zero people attend our church. Now, I hope we have a lot of seekers, and if you're here and you're not real sure who Jesus is, you are welcome. We're so glad you're here. Keep coming. If you are here seeking, you are welcome, and we want you here. And I hope we have lots of followers, lots of people who participate in the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what I hope makes up this church. I hope we have zero church attenders. I want you to try one thing, and it's not a task. This week, but in the in the week ahead in your daily life, just make a note, pause for yourself, and and it's not something to do so much as it's a heart shift. It's a perspective change. This week, the weeks ahead, make your spiritual life, whether that's Bible study, coming to church, even that's quiet time, time with just you and your Lord, make your spiritual life about more than yourself. Tell your family, tell your kids, hey, on Sunday morning, we don't attend just for ourselves. We come because we are sent. Even in your own personal quiet time, with time in the Word, time in prayer life, tell yourself, even in this, I am sent. Maybe this time with God is about more than just me. 
tell yourself this. Make time for this perspective change. When you plan your calendar, when you plan your finances, tell yourself, your spouse, you know what? We are sent under his authority with his message. And then, listen, if you actually do that, here's my only piece of advice. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Because let me tell you, just attending church and just becoming more and more familiar with Jesus gets really boring. It really does. If you're sitting in church bored today, it's probably because you're just soaking in, getting more and more familiar with Jesus. And there's no life in that. Being a follower is what we were created for. There's nothing better. Nothing better. If you don't believe me, go ask the people in church who God has worked through. There's nothing better than seeing God use you in someone else's life in ways that you know you could never do on your own. God wants to use you things, and things you can never do on your own to show compassion, to feed, to heal, and to build his kingdom. Now, there is no better way to end this teaching than to do what Mark would do, which is illustrate it. Give us a living example. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.